I was greatly blessed by the sermon that Pastor Stu Johnston uh, preached from this pulpit last Sunday. Um, as he pointed us to, to promise after promise from the New Testament. Uh, there were several times during the sermon when I felt like he was preaching right at me. And was saying something that God uh, intended for me to hear. Uh, one of the promises that he drew our attention to last Sunday was from James 4-7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It is important that we talk about the devil. Uh, it is important that we not try to hide the Bible's teaching about Satan in a corner or act embarrassed about it because it feels so out of step with our modern, sophisticated age. Uh, the moment we begin to neglect the Bible's teaching about the devil, we become a prime target for greater attacks. Uh, who is more susceptible to the wiles of the devil than the one who believes there is no threat at all? Uh, two men walking through a field. One man believes it may be a minefield. And he is ever so careful. He examines the ground carefully before each step he takes. He walks soberly. He walks cautiously. The other man is convinced this is not a minefield. It never has been. He thinks that first man is crazy. He walks all over the field with no caution whatsoever. But it is a minefield. And which is more likely to be destroyed? And which are we? You see, the devil does exist. And he is an enemy of the people of God. It is important that we as Christians not be ignorant about what the scriptures say concerning Satan. He is our adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Ephesians 5.12. Can you say with the Apostle Paul, we are not ignorant of his designs. 2 Corinthians 2.11 The vileness of Satan is revealed in his names. He is called Satan, which means adversary. The devil, which means slanderer. Beelzebul, which has its roots in the name of that pagan god Baal. He's called the prince of the power of the air, referring to his authority in the spiritual realm. He's called the ruler of this world, referring to his sway over planet earth and the way all people by nature are inherently part of his rebellion against God. He is called the evil one, telling us the essence of his character. 
I think the clearest passage about the fall of Satan and his demons is 2 Peter 2, 4, where we read that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Since the day of that fall, Satan has worked not only to bring about the fall of man, but to oppose every purpose of God and every work of God. Satan's motivation is a burning, fierce hatred for God above all, a hatred for righteousness, a desire to bring all who bear God's image into rebellion against their good creator. Satan went after Jesus. He did all he could to convince the Son of God to defy his Father. Make no mistake. Satan cannot force anyone to sin. The devil made me do it is never a real excuse before God. The devil cannot make anyone sin, but his tactics to persuade us to sin are innumerable and frankly, apart from the grace of God, irresistible. At Satan's disposal are lies, deception, murder, temptation, doubt, guilt, fear, confusion, sickness, envy, pride, and a thousand other ploys to try to destroy God's glory and our joy. And we need to not only know our enemy, we need to imitate God in hating this enemy as well. There is a kind of hatred that is holy And our God is holy, which means that he loves all that is good with an infinite love, and he hates all that is evil with an infinite hatred. Jesus is all good, and God loves his son with an infinite love. Satan is the evil one, and God abhors him. God despises him. God has willed to create a place called hell that the devil may be tormented there forever. Satan is the enemy of God and his son. Satan is the enemy of God's people. Satan is the enemy of all righteousness. God justly hates the devil. And if we have the mind of Christ, we will do so as well. Abraham Kuyper once said, when it comes to Satan... Compassion is dead, hatred is right, and love would be blameworthy. Why am I starting off this way? Because Mount Hermon, one of the chief aims, one of the chief aims of Satan is to disrupt and destroy the unity and the peace of God's people. It's one of his chief aims, destroy unity, destroy peace, and mark this One of his chief weapons is false teaching. The Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote a very helpful book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And in that book he says this, Satan labors might and main by false teachers, which are his emissaries to deceive, delude, and forever undo the precious soul's of men. Oh, Satan is active. How is Satan active? Here's one big way that Satan is active. False teachers. We're going to spend three weeks on this passage of Scripture because it's huge. 
and it's timely. And this passage is all about helping us resist the devil by not being deceived. Look with me at Romans 16. We're looking at verses 17 through 20. Romans 16, verses 17 through 20. This is the very word of God. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Here we are at the very end. The very end of this great letter to the Romans. And this is the first and only time in the entire letter that Paul mentions Satan. This is the only time in all 16 chapters of Paul's magnum opus that the devil gets a mention. And it is in connection with false teaching and false teachers who are creating divisions among the people of God. It is in connection with those who are teaching lies contrary to the doctrine of Christ and His apostles. I said these verses are a timely study for us. The truth is every age is an age of false teaching. But our age is so technologically advanced that the capacity for false teaching to spread has never been greater. You have a thousand lifetimes of false teaching available to you right now through the phone in your pocket. You, well, because we are such a connected culture, a media-saturated culture. We have a thousand different messages being thrown at us all the time. And when you have that much messaging coming to you, it is so easy to let your guard down, to be affected without even realizing it, to grow numb, to lose our alertness. However, if we are regularly spending time reading through the Bible we never get very far without a fresh reminder of just how serious false teaching is. Frankly, some of the strongest and most shocking language in the Bible is used against those who are false teachers. God knows we have a tendency to minimize this issue. God knows we have a tendency to say, this is not a big deal for me. I don't have to worry about this. And so in passage after passage, God uses language to wake us up. God uses language to shock us into alertness. We could go all the way back to Deuteronomy 13. There in the Old Testament laws, we find God's priorities. And we find just how much God hates false teaching. Listen to this. If a prophet 
or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. You shall purge the evil from your midst. Strong language. Those who preach a message that would lead us away from the true God are ranked with the very worst criminals in ancient Israel. God views false teaching as something at least as vile as murder. Murder kills the body. False teaching can destroy the soul. God goes further. Listen to this. If your brother or the son of your mother or your son or your daughter or the wife you embrace or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him. You shall not listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. All Israel shall hear and fear and never again do such wickedness as this among you. We've been studying Old Testament laws on Sunday night. We understand application is not the same from the theocracy of ancient Israel to modern times. But we do learn principles of justice and we do learn God's priorities from the Old Testament. And what we're seeing here, God hates false teaching. He takes it very seriously. If you are at all tempted to make light of it, to treat it as something small, let let these passages just fall on you. Jesus said, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. Inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. Second Peter 2, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. Perhaps the closest we see the Apostle Paul get to outright anger 
is the righteous anger that he shows in Galatians 5.12 when he says that he wishes the false teachers in Galatia would go emasculate themselves. Strong language. Here in Romans 16, the banner over these four verses is not the first verse, but the last verse, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. So much of this letter to the Romans has been about peace. And how our God of peace brings peace. The first part of Romans is all about our sinfulness. The first part of Romans is all about how all of us are by nature at enmity with God, hostile towards God, at conflict with God, under His wrath. And then Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The first half of the letter to the Romans is all about how can we have peace with God in the courts of heaven. And we get to experience that peace as we walk by faith. Romans 8 verse 6, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit of life is peace. A life of trusting Jesus, a life of depending on the Spirit to give and sustain our spiritual life, a life of walking in obedience. This causes the Christian to know true peace with God in the heart. And then the latter chapters of Romans are all about teaching God's people how to now have peace with one another. How to experience unity and peace in your relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ. Even when other Christians have very different opinions than you. Or when your fellow Christians are from a different ethnicity or a different social status. We're taught how to have peace with them. Romans 14, 19, let us pursue what makes for peace. Folks in the church at Rome wanted to divide over opinions about food and drink. Paul says the kingdom is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And even before Paul moves to these final greetings that we've just studied in chapter 16, the heart of his letter ended with that last verse of Romans 15. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Peace is on Paul's brain. And peace is in Paul's heart as he's thinking about this church in Rome. He knows it's a divided church. He knows it's a church with the the beginnings of disunity beginning to spread and pervade in it. He longs for this church to experience peace, to have true unity. He sees that at the church in Rome, there are some who are teaching falsehood, creating divisions in the church. And he knows that behind these false teachers is that ancient foe, Satan himself. And the glorious good news that Paul proclaims is this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. So as we move to unpack this passage, there's going to be five headings. The fruit of false teachers. The appeal of false teachers. The motivation of false teachers. The identifying mark of false teachers. And the right response to false teachers. 
And if you like to take notes, don't worry. You'll hear those again and again. So you'll hear them. The remainder of our time this morning is just the first heading. The fruit of false teachers. Jesus told us that we would know false teachers by their fruit. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, Beware false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Figs from thistles? Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear, good, bear bad fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Here in Romans 16, Paul is concerned about the fruit of false teaching. And what it is doing and could do to these people in Rome. He says in verse 17, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions. The first fruit of false teachers is unbiblical division among God's people. The true gospel brings peace and unity as fellow uh, sinners become brothers and sisters in Christ through Jesus. The false gospel brings division. The true gospel unites, false gospel divides. Sinners are separated from one another. False gospels pit people against one another. They, they divide people into unbiblical categories. A couple of points here. First, I think this indicates that the division in the church in Rome over eating meat and drinking wine, I, I do think we're seeing that that division was the fruit of false teachers in Rome. Thankfully for most in the church in Rome, This had not risen to the point of threatening their understanding of the gospel. Paul has already taught that the Christians on both sides of the debate, the the wine drinkers and the wine abstainers, he says, y'all are to treat each other as brothers and sisters. You're to love each other. You're to submit to each other. You're to bear patiently with one another. You're to protect each other's consciences. Paul does not see all the wine drinkers as wolves in sheep's clothing. And he doesn't see the wine abstainers as wolves in sheep's clothing. He still sees these people as brothers and sisters in Christ, but he sees that they've been troubled by an unbiblical division and that that idea came from a few false teachers. And these Christians with different opinions, they're to welcome each other into each other's hearts and lives. They're to live life together. They're to worship Christ together. But the false teachers, Paul says, avoid them. Those who are teaching these messages that are dividing you, don't go near them. The one that declares you must be a wine drinker or you're not a true Christian, or the one that says you must abstain or you're not a true Christian, Watch out for them. Avoid them, Paul says. False teaching divides. It puts people into unbiblical categories of Christianity. Second, let me just point out, all teaching divides. All teaching divides. But false teaching creates unbiblical divisions. Both between believers and unbelievers and between, quote-unquote, strong Christians and weak Christians. Put it this way. 
All teaching divides. As soon as I say Jesus is God, boom, I create a division. Because some people are going to say, yes, Jesus is God. And other people are going to say, no, he's not. The moment I say this Bible is the word of God himself, I create division. Because there are going to be people who say, amen, yes, it is. It is bread to my soul. And there are going to be people who say, that's ridiculous, of course not. But saying Jesus is God, saying the Bible is the word of God, that's not false teaching. It's true teaching. True teaching divides just like false teaching divides. The difference is false teaching divides in ways that should not happen. False teaching creates unbiblical divisions between believers and unbelievers, right? So in Galatia, you had these Judaizers that come and they say, yes, you become a Christian by faith in Jesus. But if you want to remain a Christian, men, you better be circumcised and you better embrace the Jewish feast. You have to become a true Jew. And if you're not willing to submit to the Old Testament law, you're not going to stay a Christian. So immediately they created false divisions so that those believers who were Gentiles, who didn't want to become uh, you know, Jews, circumcised, agreeing to the rites, doing the religious ceremonies of the Old Testament law, suddenly, according to this false teaching, they're not real Christians. We see the same thing in 1 Timothy 4, where apparently there were some who said, true Christians don't get married. They forbade marriage. And suddenly you have these single Christians who adopt that false teaching. They think, oh, you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but you're married. You're not a real follower of Jesus. If you were a real follower of Jesus, you'd be single like me. See, false, false divisions. Paul called that, by the way, the teaching of demons. Another connection between false teaching and Satan. Sometimes false teaching creates unbiblical divisions between Christians by dividing them into unbiblical notions of strong and weak Christians. We already saw in our study of Romans 14, Romans 15, Paul uses the language of strong and weak Christians, but he defines it for us in Corinthians. A strong Christian is one who has been well taught and understands much of the ways of God. A weak Christian is someone who has either been poorly taught or just hasn't made it far yet and understanding much of the ways of God. But there have always been those who want to use other categories for strong and weak Christians. Take, for example, the modern word faith movement. Those who teach that if you have real faith, you won't get sick. If you believe strongly enough, if you trust God enough, you can be healed of any disease. And therefore, if you're continuing to struggle with sickness, it means you have weak faith. You must be an immature Christian if you keep getting sick and can't get over it. It's absolutely contrary to the Bible, but this false teaching that is pervasive, it creates these false divisions. There's a second fruit of false teaching here. Verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles, create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. The second fruit of false teaching is unbiblical obstacles to following Jesus. You can mark it down. 
that one regular attribute of false teaching is it makes the burden of following Jesus heavier, not lighter. Jesus said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. False teachers add to the burden. They put obstacles in the way of the Christian. They make it harder to follow Jesus. Like the Pharisees who kept adding their own rules and their own regulations to the law of God. Oppressing the people. False teachers take the straight and the narrow road. And those who find it are few. But false teachers, they make it even narrower. They make it even harder than it's supposed to be to follow Christ. Now, there is an objection that can be raised to that. Because there is a line of false teaching that says real Christians don't have to obey the law of God at all. Don't have to obey Jesus at all. And you would say, how does that kind of false teaching make following Jesus harder? Especially in the past, there was a whole line of false teaching that was called uh, antinomian. Everybody say antinomian. Okay, so anti, I'm against it. Nomian, nomos, Latin means the law, against the law. These people said, once you come to know Jesus, it's all grace. It doesn't matter whether you obey Jesus or not. It doesn't matter whether you keep the commands of not. It's just, it's just all grace, no law for the Christian. And you would say, well, how is that making it harder to follow Jesus? Seems like that would make it easy. There's no law, nothing to keep. But of course, the reality is that the law is good. Romans 7 that the law is a, is a guide for us. The law paves the stones of the way of peace and blessedness. So when you have a false teaching that tells us to ignore God's commandments, to no longer feel bound to them, we end up wandering all over the place. We end up getting ourselves in all kinds of messes and difficulties. We end up making little or no growth in Christian progress or sanctification. You stay a baby Christian. You can be sure of this. False teaching always leads to greater difficulty, not less, in following Jesus and growing up spiritually. It creates obstacles. And then there's one more fruit of false teaching I see in this passage. It's implied by verse 19. Look at verse 19. Paul says to the Roman Christians, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Do you see the connecting word for? F-O-R, the very beginning. Do you see the word, the word for? So, so verse 19 is connected to what Paul has just said. He's telling the Roman Christians, watch out for false teachers. Avoid false teachers. For he wants them to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. They've been doing well. They have a reputation of obedience. Paul is rejoicing over them, but if they give way to false teaching, the result is going to be evil. Romans, you can lose your reputation for obedience. You can lose your loss of innocence as to what is evil if you give way to these false teachers. The third fruit of false teaching we see in this passage is disobedience and evil in the lives of Christians. False teaching leads to sin. False teaching leads people to think, feel, say, and do things contrary to the Word of God. 
When you won't show your brother love because he thinks differently than you do about wine, that is disobedience and evil. When you burden the conscience of your brother and add to his sorrow by telling him that if he just had enough faith, he'd get well. That is sin. If I buy into the idea that God's commandments don't matter at all, I'm likely to end up transgressing the law of God over and over and over again. All false teaching leads to sin because that's what the devil is after. He hates righteousness. Sin hardens our heart. Sin pulls us away from Christ. Sin disrupts the peace and unity of God's people. And sin dishonors the arch enemy of Satan himself, namely God. So let me be clear. If you want to identify a false teacher, you don't identify a false teacher by looking at his personal life. As we'll see next week, false teachers don't look like false teachers. The reason false teachers get a following is because they look like true teachers. They look bona fide. They are winsome. What they say sounds true. It is convincing. You cannot identify a false teacher by looking at the teacher. You identify a false teacher by looking at the fruit of their teaching. When people believe what this person is proclaiming, does it unite them as brothers and sisters through faith in Jesus or does it create divisions? If you believe what that person is teaching, is it going to create obstacles to holiness, making it harder to follow Jesus? If you listen and believe and obey what that person is teaching, is it going to lead you into sin? Follow the trajectory of the teaching. Where does it lead? Mount Hermon, I know of no better way for you to be protected and not be naive than for you to be well-schooled in the authentic gospel. You cannot recognize counterfeits if you don't know the real thing really well. The better you know the real thing, the better you will be able to spot the counterfeits. So let me ask you this morning, how well do you know the gospel of Jesus Christ? Can you articulate it? Do you believe it? Do you know exactly what it is you believe? When we say we need to stand on the gospel, do you know what you're standing on? I have found the easiest way for me to drill down to the core of the gospel, the very message on which we stand, is to hang my hat on four words. And you've heard me say them before. God, man, Christ, response. What do I believe is the gospel? You can look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 3, by the way. Paul lays it out. But here's the essence of it. Number one, God. A true gospel preaches the true God. Creator over all. Sovereign over all. Holy, holy, holy. Righteous and just. Trinity. Three in one. Father, Son, and Spirit. A true gospel preaches the biblical view of man created in the image of God, called good by God, and then we fail so that all people are born sinful and unable to fix ourselves. We are not good at heart. 
You are not, you are not. I am not, I am not. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Then can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil, the prophet says. Your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it, the prophet says. The biblical view of man is that we are broken, fallen, messed up, and we need a new heart. We must be born again. Christ. The true gospel will focus on Christ as the only way of salvation. We have not lived in obedience to God. He obeyed perfectly. And then He went to the cross as our substitute. And He took our guilt upon His shoulders. As we sang in the power of the cross earlier, Christ became sin for us. That is, God took the guilt of our sins, put it on Jesus' shoulders, and then the wrath of God that our sins deserved was poured out on Him. Substitutionary atonement. You lose it, you lose the gospel. Paul summarizes the gospel as Christ crucified for sinners. It's the heart of it. And then finally, what is the true biblical response? It is not works. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. We come to Jesus broken, sinful, messed up, acknowledging that we deserve hell and say, Lord Jesus, I have no hope but you. Will you save me? And when we trust Him, it will show itself in works. Those works don't save us. But if you have real faith, you're going to trust Jesus enough to say, you know what? He knows what's best for me. And your life of obedience will show your heart of faith. The gospel, God, man, Christ, response. Do you know it? Do you stand on it? Can you recognize the counterfeits? Oh, these people that just came to my door, they're not preaching a trinity, God. Oh, these these social justice gospel people, they're saying that man's worst problem is that they're in poverty or oppressed. Not that they've sinned against a holy God. It's a false view of man's problem, and therefore it has a false solution. the end of the day the gospel message is not what saves us the gospel message teaches us why we need to be saved and to whom we run to be saved jesus is the savior we run to christ we flee to him and as we trust him he forgives our sins and gives us the promise of heaven mount hermon know that gospel love that gospel stand on that gospel And we will be protected against false teaching. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.